News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks so much for being with us. We will keep you up to date on what's happening on the roads and with the snow this morning. Right now, though, we want to shift a little bit. And one of the stories that we have been covering extensively on this program, on this radio station, is money laundering in this province. You'll recall the Cullen Commission intensified former politicians, gaming executives, casino workers all testifying on what actually happened at BC casinos. Well, Sam Cooper, Global National investigative reporter followed along at every turn. We are checking in with him now to take a look at the year that was and what we might expect as we talk more about money laundering. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I know I, I, th- I don't think anybody was as consumed or following along as closely as you were on this and even some, some new information in the past couple of days. But let's start with that commission. And what did we glean? What did we learn about money laundering from that? Well, you're right. There, there's been 70,000 pages of evidence that uh, Justice Cullen is now confronted with. He has a few months to to boil it down and, and look at some very serious questions. So, And you're right, I've been watching it closely, and I think I boiled it down to the essence uh, for, for, your, uh, for your listeners. Uh, we analyzed what, what the justice has heard, and really there's a few key questions. Again, yes, we had bombshell testimony that went right to the top of a uh, BC's former BC Liberal government. The, uh, the uh, key question here is uh, former gaming minister Rich Coleman. We heard from really a, a string of witnesses, uh, some would be called whistleblowers, that alleged that they uh, directly, in some cases, or indirectly, warned uh, former gaming minister Coleman uh, that they, the, the investigators in the casinos and in the government regulator office believed very serious drug money laundering was occurring. Police had yet to prove concrete links uh, to drug cash, but it was uh, basically an open secret that a lot of, a lot of investigators uh, knew that high-level drug trafficking suspects were the very same highest-level VIP gamblers inside these Vancouver-area casinos. The, of course, uh, your listeners know there were tapes showing uh, bundles of cash, bags of cash that looked like drug proceeds delivered to these high rollers. So Commissioner Cullen must decide, uh, did Mr. Coleman ignore very serious and credible warnings? If he did, you know, what should the consequences be? Similarly, uh, former Premier Christy Clark was testified uh, she, I mean, questioned, and uh, she said that she didn't receive direct warnings of how bad it was getting inside these government casinos until 2015. Uh, that brings us to RCMP investigations. Were they impeded by the very BC government that, you know, holds a contract for provincial policing with the RCMP? We're in, uh, we heard from an, a, a former investigator named Fred Pinnock, who claimed that his uh, anti-illegal gaming unit was effectively barred from going inside casinos and tackling what he and his colleagues believed was very serious organized crime. To the new details that I revealed in my, uh, my, my look back at these two years of hearings, we have records, and uh, your listeners can go to the Cullen Commission website. They can see, again, that these very highest-level gamblers that were flying in from China and receiving bags of cash were themselves 
some of them suspected fentanyl precursor importers. And I, uh, I'll just end my summary right here by saying, uh, your listeners know we have an absolute death epidemic in the downtown east side. We've uh, seen recent reports of heroin mixed with uh, fentanyl in Richmond drug labs. And look, uh, the very top money generators in BC casinos, it's known they were fentanyl precursor importing suspects connected to these very same labs. So will anyone be held accountable, do you think, or will this lead to any type of change or, or what happens next? I have to say, and uh, I'll go to my some of my sources that I've been talking to for years, the very same people that were up there testifying in front of the commissioner. I Some of them don't have a great degree of confidence. So some of them appeared to get much more of a grilling from uh, the commission lawyers than, than some people that uh, were in government power. And, and look, these very same high-level known international drug trafficking suspects that, that could have been questioned were not. Meanwhile, we see, again, fentanyl labs busted. We see weapons that are uh, connected to these same crime networks. Uh, just your listeners know about uh, the shootings we've seen in Vancouver. So uh, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, I didn't sit up there and get grilled myself. So I can step back with some uh, objective views and say, I believe that the commission lawyers uh, were, their job was to, to see, is it, could it be true that BC government uh, ignored credible warnings of serious criminality with the reason being that it, this was uh, pouring revenue into their coffers? And uh, I think they gave Commissioner Cullen a very strong case uh, that that indeed was happening. People turned a blind eye because BC was getting rich. So uh, what will happen? Commissioner Cullen, I believe he has the evidence in front of him to say that indeed did happen. People turned a blind eye. And furthermore, he has the evidence that a very, very dangerous uh, infiltration of transnational organized crime has happened in B.C. and indeed Canada. And our institutions have failed. He could make some very serious recommendations. Will anyone that was in power go to jail? I just, I, it's hard for me to see that happening. And why I say that, uh, Canada has pretty, pretty weak laws with regards to investigating corruption and, uh, more importantly, with putting known very serious criminals in jail. And, but Commissioner Cullen could look at those very same laws and make recommendations. And this is something that uh, people might look at this or listen to your reports and read your stories on this and think, oh, well, this was something that was happening in the previous government. This was happening years ago. But you've also sent out information on December 23rd about a much more recent investigation that also has connections. That's right. Uh, Again, relying on sources, uh, some of the people that may or may not have testified in the commission, I've been talking to them for years and they were watching an investigation in Richmond by the RCMP very closely, looking at uh, alleged fentanyl drug labs. And uh, news just came out of uh, Richmond RCMP that a number, I believe it's something like uh, five to six people have been charged. Canada's prosecution service has accepted the case. And uh, the details can be disclosed now that you have some of these mansions in Richmond they were uh, running as drug labs, allegedly, and when police busted them, they found these uh, restricted uh, lawn guns. They found uh, labs, cash. They, they, they seized kilograms of fentanyl. They seized, again, pre-mixed heroin and fentanyl. 
so I want to tell your listeners one more time when we, we we have a lot of discussion about you know what this epidemic of o- opioid overdoses it's fentanyl uh, mixed with heroin prepackaged and being delivered in the downtown east side that is truly responsible for these thousands of deaths so uh, it really my sources say there are linkages to the people that could have and should have been questioned at the inquiry that is the loan sharks responsible for this uh you know this scheme where money is cycled between china and canada underground using casinos to move drug cash around the world and uh look the the connection is direct between the these labs in bc churning out fentanyl and uh the casino activity so uh Again, Commissioner Cullen, I, I don't know if, if he can say anything about this case, but what I can say is in my years of investigation, Commissioner Cullen is familiar with the very same people that are inside our casinos doing this money laundering because he, he has uh, ruled on cases of this drug gain from China going way back to the early 2000s. All right, Sam, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for all your reporting on this. Look forward to reading more of it. Thank you. Sam Cooper, Global National Investigative Reporter. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is usually a time that should be very busy for restaurants and people making plans for New Year's Eve. But we are seeing many restaurants continuing to deal with a labor shortage and now also dealing with staff members testing positive for COVID. There's, there's no one extra to work. If, if you can't make your shift, we just go with less people. Luckily, uh, people are a little more reticent about going out for dinner, so it isn't as busy as it has been. So it's, it's been manageable so far, but I mean, every day, like, you know, we had another person test positive today. I, I think every day it's going to be like that. It's, you know, at some point we might just have to, to pull the chute on everything and keep them close for a few days. But, but even then, I, I don't know how helpful that is. And then you come back and then it's just, it's just a cycle. It, it never seems to end. That was Mike Jeffs. He is the owner of Nook Restaurant, talking about dealing with that labor shortage and not knowing what the future is going to hold. Let's bring in Ian Tostenson. He is the president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, Very well. How about you? Pretty good, thanks. (laughs) So when you hear somebody like that, you can hear the frustration in his voice, but like he said, you you just kind of deal with this and move on. Uh, Are you hearing that from other restaurants as well as far as dealing with similar situations? Yeah, totally. It's um, I wrote wrote a thing for the industry for the year end that was likening our industry to a a heavyweight boxing match. And And your opponent just refuses to go down on the mat because it doesn't matter what you throw at that opponent. And that's kind of where we're at. So we've got, you know, we're in the midst of COVID. Now we've got some weather. That'll slow things down a bit, too. And um, and we're seeing some closures because of labor shortage. All these things, uh, unbelievably, are being dealt with in a very sort of systematic way. And I was thinking about that, um, that restaurants are very systematic. And the owners and people that work in restaurants are very systems-orientated. So when it comes to these kinds of puzzles, they're quite good at solving them. So I was just talking to a restaurant owner on text before this um, downtown, and they're a busy place. And so tomorrow night, they're going to keep it very simple. They will be open, and that's great that we weren't open last year uh, for New Year's Eve. And but it's going to keep it very simple. They're going to have not you know several turns, so a turn being you know a, a, an early and later sitting, but just one sitting, and probably uh, not open until two and close you know and then and then run the evening. So. A combination of reduced hours and simplicity right now 
in restaurants that are that, that have enough staff, frankly, uh, to open will be the call for tomorrow night. Um, in terms, we are seeing, there's no question, we're, we're seeing, you know, why wouldn't we, we're like everybody else, we are being affected by COVID. Um, but, you know, and I think was, uh, this is a really a remarkable as well, too. A lot of businesses closed for three or four days this week voluntarily just to give either staff a break and, and any staff members that were sort of dealing with anything to sort of try to whip it out of the system so they could come back and, and be open for uh, New Year's Eve, which I thought was great. And they're being very open about it. No one's hiding this. It's the same we closed for COVID. Um, that some owners getting COVID now, but it's all, uh, no one is, uh, Jill, just say this, no one is yelling and screaming. They're just dealing with it. It's just another thing we have to deal with as we get to the other side. Is there a concern then, I wonder, with restaurant workers getting a, or higher case numbers, uh, and anyone who's going to restaurants knows that there's masks and there are measures in place, but it must still be difficult because even if you're masked, workers are so close together and are in such close contact. Is there a concern that there is more spread because of that? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, they're really strict just because of the whole policies that we've, we've had right before masks and before vaccinations to, uh, you know, anybody has any symptoms whatsoever, um, stay home. And uh, to the best of the ability of the employer, one of the things that we have learned is that, you know, everybody's trying to take care of the workers, you know, irrespective of sick day pay and stuff. You know, we can do whatever we can to help people get through that. So, um, people feel more comfortable about staying home as opposed to, gee, I better, you know, sort of fake it, go to work. It's not happening. So I think, I think we're all right. We, we continue to be low risk. I think Dr. Henry would have addressed this. Uh, well, I know she would have had she felt that there is, you know, a risk, particularly with this variant uh, right now. She would have said, look, we're not going to continue to do this. But she hasn't done that. I think she's quite satisfied. At what point, though, can restaurants still just close the doors for a few days? Or in these cases, we, we've seen some restaurants say two weeks or three weeks. Uh, when, you're, when you're working on such a small profit margin, how, how often can you even do that? Oh, it's really hard. That's why I think that, um, you know, January uh, will, be, will be hard for workers because it's very slow for us. And so that's going to give the system a chance to sort of clean it. Uh, itself, but, uh, or, you know, sort of work these things out. But the problem we, we have longer term is, is, you know, it's either a labor shortage or retention shortage. I know I'm just trying to figure out which way it is, but we've got to reposition this industry after all this. And I, and I do believe that 2022 is going to be a rebuilding, a very positive one. I think this variant, our opinion in five or six months should be quite stabilized that we've got to build careers. We've got to build uh, the restaurant industry as a place that people Want that feel comfortable working, but you know it's been really hard for for us as an employer to be consistent. And so you know, this we, we close your restaurant because of COVID. Yet again, we have to remember that these are people trying to pay their rent and their bills, and it's really tough on them. So we have to go through a whole replanning of that. I think that we can be the industry of choice, but you know, right now uh, a lot of this is being dealt with. Like the owner you just had on at Nook, um, they're probably he's probably working you know 15 hours a day, seven days a week. Just keep his business going just because of the whole situation with staff shortages. Um, and then the other thing, Jill, uh, was, which is starting to reemerge, and it's so important just not to our industry, but just important to the economy, is the reemergence of skilled foreign workers. And we're seeing now the federal government starting to get uh, to sort of wake up and, and understand this has to be dealt with a lot quicker than they have been because, you know, uh, Probably 25% or 30% of BC's workforce is relying on immigration. 
And that is something uh, that we really haven't been focusing on lately when dealing with with everything else that's going on. No, and, and a lot of the um, so skilled you get skilled workers. We're, we're talking here skilled workers that can come in at you know good paying jobs. These are not people taking Canadian jobs, and you have to prove that there is no Canadian to take the job, which is pretty easy because you know we see restaurants advertising. There's no one out there um, because everybody's doing the same thing. So. Uh, it generally takes maybe four or five months because taking upwards now of nine to ten months because of the delays in countries uh, where a lot of workers are coming from in just processing the paperwork. So there's some discussion now with the federal government to streamline that process. And um, so that really helped prior to the pandemic, uh, particularly in kitchens. Um, but interestingly, um, now we're seeing in some cases um, restaurants trying to provide some hours for their cooks because you know, they're shutting down sections and they're shutting down some of their hours, but the cooks still want to work. So that leads to what we learn over the pandemic is the whole takeout thing. So I would encourage anybody that doesn't want to go tomorrow night to sort of pick your favorite restaurant, tell them you intend to eat, order, give them a little bit of hope. And um, we can, we can use, understand, or use restaurants that way as opposed to, to going out. And that's an, a, a little easier for the restaurants to deal with it, particularly in labor shortage. And do you think we will see more of that? You gave that one example of how that restaurant is scaling back for in-person, uh, in-person, much smaller celebration tomorrow. What do you think generally we're going to see tomorrow night as far as people who still want to maybe do something for New Year's Eve? Yeah, any restaurants that I've spoken to, so I sort of scan like sort of Victoria, the Okanagan stuff, everybody that, that has an event at their, not an event, we can't have events, but you know, that has a special uh, a dinner uh, planned or a couple of different sittings for New Year's tomorrow night are busy. And so I think that um, we're not seeing the reluctance that we've seen <clears throat> in the past over this variant. I think people are, you know, that are double vaxxed, that are wearing a mask and doing all the things. I think we feel quite confident about, about the situation. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to you know, do, do an advertisement for restaurants, but we do a good job at providing that it's safe environment and as, as evidenced by Dr. Henry's point of view on us. And I think people feel good about that. Um, we'll see how the weather cooperates, but you know, the good thing about the industry now, there's, there's two sides to it right now. There's, you can order in and, or you can go into the restaurant. And uh, so either one of those alternatives uh, would, you know, the restaurant will really appreciate that support. All right. Well, Ian, thank you so much for this. I likely won't talk to you before the next year. So Happy New Year to you. But we will talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, Jill, and everyone in your life. And we'll talk to you inside. All right. Sounds good. That is Ian Tostenson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday morning. Well, as you likely heard in the news, the 2022 World Juniors Hockey Tournament was cancelled. That decision was made yesterday after multiple COVID-19 cases were found within the teams. The International Ice Hockey Federation Medical Committee, as along, with other mem- along with other members and the tournament COVID-19 medical group, decided that because of the ongoing spread of the virus and the Omicron variant, the tournament would be be cancelled, that to ensure the health and safety of everybody involved. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Adam Lascaris, Daily Hive Toronto sports writer. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Uh, Not a huge surprise, but what's the reaction to this decision? 
Um, yeah, I guess there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, varied reaction uh, around the around the sporting world. I think the, the biggest one, uh, no matter how anybody feels about it, is sort of, you know, frustration. Uh, I think that's, you know, the underlying tone is people are, you know, frustrated and upset that uh, the tournament got started and, and ultimately, uh, you know, wasn't able to, uh, to finish out uh, just because, you know, people were looking forward to, to the tournament, players were looking forward to it, fans, you know, everybody was, was looking forward to it, and it was ultimately, you know, a pretty short-lived experience. Yeah, and, and I think you're right, people understand why the decision was made, but it's also different, isn't it, in that if we're talking about an uh, an NHL game being cancelled, it, it's an inconvenience and it's not great for fans, but you can go on. And when it comes back, you can play another game. Whereas the world juniors, isn't this a place where a lot of young players are discovered and they're not going to have that opportunity now? Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, I think one of the, the interesting things about this, you know, this tournament and, you know, the concept uh, the conversation around canceling it and whatnot is uh, sort of just wondering what went into, uh, you know, having this tournament uh, get off the ground in the first place, because it sounded like, um, for what I was hearing with the, with the cancellation yesterday, they were just planning to, you know, have a, have a full tournament, have, you know, 18,000 fans in the stands uh, every game that's in Edmonton, and, right? And they were supposed to have things going forward, and then December comes, and, you know, they realize case numbers are rising, the, the Omicron variant's coming, and they didn't announce until a few days before the tournament that they were, you know, cutting capacity and, and things like that, right? So uh, it was a tournament where there was definitely, you know, warning signs on the wall that they, they weren't going to be able to have uh, the great tournament that they wanted. And then I think once the, you know, game cancellation started coming, people realized pretty quickly, right, there's not too much wiggle room here to operate a, a proper tournament, right, one that's respectable. And, you know, you don't want a situation where they're coming into playoff games and, you know, you've got a semifinal and you've got three or four teams participating. And then there's a whole conversation about, is this a legitimate tournament? Is it not a tournament? And it seemed like, you know, that even though the, the spread of, of the virus within the tournament to some might have seemed like it was only a number of cases. It seemed like they were, you know, trying to make the call to prevent uh, things from getting a whole lot worse. So even though officials have been saying they continually adapted and they strengthened those protocols, are you getting the sense that there's, there's some thought process that maybe more could have been done? Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that I heard on the call yesterday was basically um, they were never planning to do any sort of, you know, bubble for this this tournament um which you know in hindsight it's easy to say that they should have should have planned for such a thing i think they were just kind of hoping that it would it would look like most of the rest of the sporting world um was for for a couple months right um with you know the nhl nba and things were going off mostly without a hitch but then you know once uh around december came you know more and more and more players were, were entering protocol and you know just cases were going up everywhere across north america so um it, it seemed like they you know, there wasn't really a, a chance to sort of pivot to a, a stricter bubble schedule. I know the one the one story that came out yesterday was that the the players that were out in Red Deer were saying that their their hotel they were you know just in a hotel with the with the regular public and there was a a wedding reception going on in, in that hotel and there was you know guests from all over and they were just kind of wandering all about the hotel and and you know even if you're trying to stay safe you're you know you're just running into the general public uh, just on the way to the bus and, you know, on the way downstairs to, to the hotel lobby and things like that. So I think there was uh, definitely some questions about, you know, whether all the proper precautions were taken. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll still be hearing out those answers for the next couple of days and weeks, I think. All right. A lot of disappointment there for sure. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time.
Yeah, no, thanks for having me. All right, that is Adam Lascaris, Daily Hive Toronto sports writer, again talking about the 2022 World Juniors Hockey Tournament. That call was made yesterday to cancel the tournament. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there is still snow falling in several parts of Metro Vancouver and on Vancouver Island. Some listeners have been sending me photos of the snowfall in Nanaimo, other parts of the island, treacherous conditions on many of the roads there as well. Let's check in now with paramedics and see what they have been dealing with these past few days. And joining us on the line is Troy Clifford, who is the provincial president of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC, also an active paramedic. Troy, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. Thank you, Jill, for having me on this morning. Uh, the roads are pretty treacherous. I know early this morning yeah. when I was on them and some of my colleagues here as well, uh, how is it for ambulances getting around in this kind of weather? Well, getting around generally is not a problem with the, our equipment, but the, the big problem or the challenge is obviously the traffic and people's uh, driving conditions and, and that sort of stuff. But usually uh, the, the, the traffic or the... the, the uh, hazards are the what causes us uh, challenges when we're we're trying to navigate around in these conditions obviously uh, right so sorry things like if somebody's out and has had to abandon their vehicle or, or isn't able to drive yeah those type of things or they don't have the proper uh, safety equipment like ty- proper winter tires or whatnot and they think that uh, it's definitely a different condition in driving in these conditions as you know and and I think that's probably where if you don't have the proper tires, you shouldn't even be considering going out. Uh, and those are the kinds of things when cars get spun out or, or accidents happen that uh, cause uh, traffic congestion that delay ambulances uh, or any emergency vehicle getting to, to, uh, to uh, somebody in their time of need is not a good thing. So I, I think the, the advice that's given that uh, you shouldn't, if you don't have to go out, don't go out when you're in these conditions and, um, and just make sure you have the proper tires and, uh, safety equipment to make sure if something does happen, you can look after yourself. Uh, You talked about getting to people when they're in their time of need. We know that paramedics have responded to uh, dozens of calls for hypothermia, frostbite. Can you talk a bit about how many calls have come in and what paramedics have been responding to? Yeah, so BCHS uh, tracks uh, calls that are coded as um, hyperthermia or uh, exposure type calls. And they had, I believe it was 50 over a three-day window around Christmas there. And I, I think it's continued since then. We haven't seen the latest numbers. But those are just ones that are actually coded. So a lot more calls are related, obviously, to weather conditions. Um, you know, it, it, when you talk about adverse weather conditions, it will, you know, we experience horrible ones in the summer with the heat. We're not experiencing those same numbers of, uh, you know, deaths and that. But we definitely are seeing um, exposure calls. And um, with more people out and about, we're seeing rinks being set up and that sort of stuff. But with that comes... Um, you know, people not clearing their, their sidewalks or the ice under the snow and that, and people are slipping and falling. So all those type of calls are uh, weather-related that are increasing. Are the, but the more dire ones are the ones where we're seeing exposure, whether it's people that are um, out and about or whether it's, uh, you know, doing recreational stuff. But more importantly, people that are um, homeless or, or not and able to be, provide shelter or heat, um, those type of calls are really uh, disturbing to see and, um, they're definitely when there's adverse. So, we, you know, the same advice we had in the summer or we give in the summer when we had heat to uh, check on the vulnerable and make sure that we're supported um, and uh, make sure we get the help for people that uh, may not be able to do it for themselves. 
How much time does somebody have in in a scenario like that if you are exposed to this type of weather where we're seeing the temperatures staying below freezing and we're seeing the snow now? I mean, how much how much time or or how important is it that you get help right away? Well, once your body temperature uh, starts uh, lowering or hiring or raising, depending on the scenario, but in, in these conditions, as soon as your body starts temperature start your core temperature starts decreasing that's when you uh start seeing the effects on your health and and decreased level of consciousness and all those medical emergencies so you you you, any uh exposure in real cold like we're seeing in some places in the interior or down here especially where people aren't used to it um it could happen very quickly and within uh, you know uh start seeing deterioration within minutes and uh you know half an hour um but as it it, more exposure goes on, obviously the core temperature of a, uh, your body uh, decreases, then you start seeing the, the shutdown of organs and, and, uh, and vital, uh, vital organs and, and uh, loss of temperature, and then that decreases your um, level of consciousness and all those sorts of things that come with that. So, so those are, uh, that's where it becomes an emergency to start uh, to get into a hospital and, and have proper uh, reheating and, and uh, treatments. And when you talk about people watching out for others and making sure they're, they're calling if there's an emergency, would that be for anybody? If somebody sees somebody who's maybe sleeping on the street or somebody who's living in their vehicle, is that something that people should be calling in immediately? Yeah, I think, well, you know, making sure we're not tying up for emergency resources for somebody that doesn't need uh, an ambulance, but making sure that they're checked on and getting help safely is the key thing. So, you know, if somebody's just sleeping, um, you know, whether they need an ambulance or help getting to a shelter or just support with with something is, is the key thing. So the check-in and, and risk assessment is the first thing. But definitely if anybody needs a medical or, or emergency help, they should be calling for help right away or if in, at all in doubt. Um, we could, we'd rather respond and, uh, and check than not. And, you know, it's hard to say. And some people don't feel comfortable checking on people that they don't know. So, you know, you've got to do your best under the circumstances. But uh, ever in doubt, I think, is uh, we, we prefer people to err on the side of caution. Um, but uh, also there's other resources that are out there, community checking the websites on community resources that are available. And there's volunteer groups that support uh, people and that sort of stuff. So there's lots of resources um, to to support people, but we just need to make sure we're all checking on our loved ones. And uh, when we come across somebody that may need help, we get the right help at the right time. And how are paramedics doing as far as staffing levels and dealing with this? Because like you said, we also talked about this in the summer when the heat dome hit and resources, because now I would imagine paramedics are dealing with calls to do with the weather and the cold and the the minus and the wind chill, uh, as well as everything else that, that was already happening, whether it's the opioid crisis and other emergency calls. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're hitting on what's uh, continuing to be our our biggest challenges, uh, you know, we don't have enough staff still. It's, it's, uh, I wouldn't say that our situation is any better today than it was in the summer. We've got a lot of plans and processes in place. We've added a lot of resources, um, but we're still seeing those. Over the holidays, we've seen significant shortages of paramedic and dispatchers. That's definitely still affecting our ability to respond. Um, and it's a tough time of year for uh, us. The type of calls we see over the holidays, especially with the uh, Omicron and, and the uh, increased uh, isolation we're seeing again that people are are worn out as you know um and uh, we're starting to see incredible numbers of uh, covid calls again and this time of year we see a lot of mental health and uh and psych- uh, 
psychological and overdose uh, situations. Just, I think it's the isolation, and I'm not sure what the reason around the holidays are, but we tend to see more more psychological or mental health challenges, um, and that's really hard on paramedics. Uh, you know, they're working through the holidays. Some of them are away from their families. Um, not it's not unique to us, but a lot of emergency services and and anybody that's providing uh, vital services uh, to keep things going during the holidays adds a little more extra pressure, I think. And then when we add all these other things that we've just talked about, uh, you know, they're still seeing the the challenges. But they're you know I'm proud of them. They're they're all surging ahead and and keeping a doing what they can under the circumstances. But we're still seeing some pretty challenging. Uh, resource issues definitely joe well and with the cases going up the way they are with omicron especially are there more cases as far as our paramedics going into isolation because they're also getting the virus yeah so we haven't seen a a significant uh, spike in in paramedic uh, um or they haven't been reported yet uh but i imagine our numbers are going to over the holidays, if somebody was off and they've been exposed to that, but you know, all the paramedics that are working are are at least double vaccinated, and most are are, are already receiving their boosters. So I think uh, we're protected as much as we can. Plus, we have robust, as you know, PPE protective equipment. Um, so we're we're doing as best we can while we're at work. But uh, I guess where the risk comes, if like everybody else, is when they're not at work and uh, making sure they follow the provincial health orders and, and um, minimizing any exposures and that. So we haven't had reports of significant numbers, but I am aware that some have uh, definitely affected our, our billing, like other any other profession, right? Right. So I would imagine the next few days you're going to be watching for that. Oh, absolutely. So they've been monitoring and, and we've been watching it over the holidays for sure. And since Omicron really uh, came to you know, the pressure we started seeing just before Christmas. But we've been monitoring it, and we haven't had significant spikes in numbers of book-offs related to Omicron or or COVID, but uh, we'll definitely be watching over the next couple days and as it unfolds uh, every day. All right. Troy Clifford, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you, Joe. You have a great day, and all the best to all your listeners over the holidays. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Ipsos is taking a look at the big stories of this year, as well as what people are expecting for the next year. Only four in 10 people thought life would return to normal in 2021. So what else are people saying about this year? Joining us is Ipsos CEO, Daryl Bricker. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on, Joe. Well, so many things to get to in this. This is Ipsos taking a look back at what we discovered, what we learned this year. Let's go through some of the highlights what were you asking people or what were you focusing on uh, looking at this past year well the first thing we wanted to know is whether people thought we had a good they had a good year or they had a bad year uh, most people last year didn't think uh, the year was great although it's fairly divided it's about 54 percent said that uh, uh, um, last year wasn't as good as they thought it, it, it would be uh, but they're certainly more optimistic about the next year so 2022 where 67 percent told us that uh, they were actually optimistic about the coming year. Uh, that's a good thing. I suppose we still have some optimism because it certainly sounds like or looks like people are uh, really feeling the pinch as far as things are costing more and their health, taking a closer look at their health. Yeah, those are the two things that we really saw um, bouncing in the uh, in, in, in our polling and, and also about how people look uh, forward to how they're going to, uh, I guess, adjust their lives going forward uh, is uh, physical and mental health, you know, clearly important, but also financial issues. 
people feeling the pinch when it comes to things like debt. In fact, a, a large percentage of Canadians were telling us that they're actually feeling the, uh, the pinch of uh, inflation, particularly on things like, for example, housing and the cost of food. Uh, I saw transportation in there as well. It just seemed like the list of things that people were really noticing in their wallets and how much it was costing more. That list is a pretty long one. Yeah, the interesting thing about inflation this time around is it's not people focus specifically on one thing, although, you know, obviously groceries and, and, uh, and housing are, are right at the top of the list. But it's not just, uh, uh, you know, inflation is going up specifically, it's going up generally. People are looking at uh, the cost of living across a whole series of categories being more significant than what it, what it was. Uh, it also looked at, and not a huge surprise, I guess, figure, seeing as we were in a pandemic, that doctors overtook scientists when it comes to the most trusted professions. Yeah, it's really interesting when you take a look at the the effect of science during the pandemic. I mean, if, uh, uh, you know, you can't think of a political movement or a religion that would have big an impact on what people, uh, uh, how people have behaved during the course of this this pandemic as science has. We've shut, completely shut down the world. Um, And that you know, underscores the fact that uh, the reason that people were prepared to do that was they have a great deal of trust in our in our scientific community. And speaking of health and respect for doctors, I thought the number was really interesting on how much we perhaps didn't pay as much attention to our mental health pre-pandemic. And it's now, I think, was it close to 80% say they, they kind of look at mental health and physical health as being equally important? Yeah, they really do. And that's one of the big changes that we've seen, not just in Canada, but as a global trend, where the stress that people are under, or the effects of, uh, on, on, on the public's mental health are becoming a really big priority for, for, uh, for the public. So that has implications, not just for obviously how we plan things like our New Year's resolutions and, and uh, you know, short-term uh, effects, but it also has uh, an effect in terms of the kinds of things that they're going to be looking for out of our healthcare system. So, uh, you know, not just, uh, uh, you know, going to the emergency room to, you know, get a you know, broken bone fix, but, you know, having access to services to help you cope uh, with uh, the pressures that we're under uh, as a result of not just this pandemic, but, uh, but modern life in general. And did it look at, when we talk about healthcare or delivery of care, and certainly this has come up when it comes to vaccines being available around the world, did you look at kind of how we might feel different about rich versus poor or about about kind of that disparity that's out there? Well, what you see is that the public has a willingness to uh, make sure that vaccines are spread pretty widely uh, across the world. So there is a willingness for countries with excess, and this includes Canada, to, to share vaccines with other parts of the world, but only if they feel that the, the pandemic is under control where they live. So uh, it, it's one of those things where we, we've seen across the world uh, over the space of the last three years is this thickening of borders. This idea of national identity and taking care of things in my community and taking care of things close to home is a, is a, is a real priority for the public. But once they feel that that's taken care of, then, they're, then they are much more willing to, uh, to uh, donate vaccines to other, other parts of the world. But Given what's happening with Omicron right now, um, uh, the the likelihood that uh, people are going to be really, really strongly supportive of the government uh, distributing other uh, vaccines to other parts of the world is, is, is probably not very high. 
Uh, we talked about how, how doctors became the most trusted profession. Did you also look at kind of where the trust lies or how comfortable or supportive people of our uh, people are of, of their governments? And I guess in specifically how their governments dealt with the man- pandemic. You know, what we uh, what we're seeing in our in our uh, our polling right now is that uh, when we go back two years, or even to last Christmas, around the same period of time that uh, that we're in right now, uh, is the public was much more supportive of government uh, than they are today. So uh, last year around this time, uh, actually it was during the summertime when we saw this, but um, the the numbers that for all provincial premiers, for the prime minister, just about anybody and uh, you know mayors uh, were at historical highs. Uh, today, uh, they're back down closer to what they uh, they would, would typically be. So what's happened is the pandemic, the effect of the pandemic, um, we've kind of cycled through that rally behind the flag type of <laughs> type of uh, a response to governments. And we're, uh, we're, we're going back to what looks more like traditional patterns of how people evaluate governments. So uh, what uh, will happen? I know uh, the slide, one of the slides in this uh, survey, uh, the headline is where to next? What idea or what kind of direction does it look like we're going next? Well, it looks to me like what we're seeing in uh, terms of public opinion right now is that uh, uh, a lot of the, uh, I would say, most extreme emotion is coming out of the dealing with um, uh, dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. So it's not that people don't think it's important. It's still right at the top of the list in terms of people's priorities. But the level of intensity of importance isn't as big as it was, you know, this time last year. So what that's doing is it's opening up a space for other types of issues uh, for people to talk about and think about. So everything from inflation to, you know, the job market through to, uh, you know, the environment, any, any types of other issues that uh, previous to the pandemic were seen as important, uh, they're now finding their way back onto the public agenda. So I, I think... What we're going to see is that uh, while the coronavirus is going to re- remain the, you know, the sort of the uber issue uh, in terms of uh, what people are going to be concerned about, there's going to be space for conversations about other things. And as we move through the course of this year, uh, I think attention is going to turn to the issues of inflation. They're going to become really important, but also issues that relate to the size of government, the role of government, and uh, doing something about the the, uh, the level of government spending that's taken place during the course of the pandemic. Uh, I'm not saying that it's going to become a you know a, a, a you know a hot button issue, but I think we're going to see more space opening up for conversations about issues like this. All right, looking forward to that, Daryl Bricker. Thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Daryl Bricker is the CEO at Ips.